Good morning. My pleasure to preach again for you guys this month. Uh, for those of you that are visitors, uh, welcome. We're glad to have you here this morning. Uh, excited to have you be a part of our worship today. I'm humming. I'm humming a lot more. Um, <laughs> we are getting loud. Ah, there we are. We're happy to have you today. Uh, for those of you, again, that are visitors, uh, we I'm not the usual preacher. If you have checked the website, uh, Pastor Matt is our usual regular preacher. Uh, I get the opportunity to preach rather often, but uh, he is our primary speaker. He is on a uh, kind of extended time of rest this month, um, getting ready for uh, the fall and some things coming. And so I uh, am, get the pleasure of filling the pulpit for the majority of the month. We're hoping to have another guest preacher at some point during this month, but we're still waiting. Um, as some of you may know, we pastors are fantastic at communicating. Um, so <laughs> we're waiting to hear back from some of them. But uh, today we are going to continue in our Habits of Grace series. We are officially halfway through. We are on the down slope now. Uh, this, I believe, is week eight of, of what, 16 or 14? It's 14. And so we are uh, we're on the down slope, but we are still talking about prayer. We have really three main components to the habits of grace that we've been talking about, and that is the Word having His voice, uh, prayer having His ear, and then, of course, uh, fellowship, community, the, we have His body. And so we're looking forward to, uh, to bringing prayer kind of around the, the curve here and getting into the last of those three. But we've been talking about them as streams of grace. And you, you see that from our, uh, from our bumper that there's really three different streams that kind of converge. And what we're talking about is the idea of putting ourselves in these streams of grace. And so for most of us, we experience the language of this as our spiritual disciplines, the things that we talk about there. And what we're really looking at is these three main components are really the foundation of all the spiritual disciplines. And the idea is that God has provided these three streams for us to soak in, to be in, that give, and not in a salvific sense, but give grace. And these graces are things that we need in our lives as Christians, and so we want to continue to wade deeper into those. And today's message is called Sharpen Your Affections Through Fasting. We're talking really overall about enjoying Jesus through habits of grace, and in this particular one, we're talking about sharpening our affections specifically through fasting. So I know, exciting, you guys are, you guys are jazzed about this. And I really want to ask how many of you regularly fast and are good at that, but then that will kind of negate all the benefit that you get for fasting, right? You're not supposed to proclaim it. So we'll just assume that you guys are all as skilled in this as I am, um, and as most of the American churches. So um, this is not the most exciting uh, thing, and it's certainly not the most fun thing to try to persuade you to. Uh, but I hope that through our passage today, you'll see uh, maybe something that you haven't seen or thought about before, not that it's new, uh, but that it's not typically coupled with fasting. And so, when we, if we think about this idea of fasting, we're going to first go to our text in Matthew chapter 9 and read that, and uh, that will help set the stage for what we're going to explore today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 15. It says this in verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, 
Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Let's pray together. Father God, as we explore this stream of prayer today, we pray that you would help us see uh, with fresh eyes something that I think the majority of us neglect. And, and Father, I think those that even may practice this spiritual discipline uh, may not quite understand its purpose, uh, may not see its goodness, uh, and Father, may not see really the reality with which our identity is wrapped up in this, this long-lost, really, practice of fasting. And so, God, we pray that your spirit would illuminate for us the truths of the text, that we would take them, and Father, that we would live them out this week before you and before the world. Father, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is not a fun topic. It's not a fun text, typically, um, although I am pretty excited for this sermon. However, this would have been really a disaster for this elder particularly to need to have to preach uh, just even six months ago. Um, It's pretty difficult for a 440-pound unrepentant pastor to talk to you about self-control and fasting and food, and I recognize that. Um, And so I am thankful for the grace of God in my life over particularly these past six months. Uh, 56 pounds later, I'm working through this along with you. Um, I want to encourage you on one front that uh, God demands that his pastors, his elders, his shepherds be above reproach. And he's not content to leave us in in a manner that is that way. And so I believe it's by his discipline and certainly by his grace that I'm walking this road of repentance with and before you. Uh, at the same time, um, God will not stand for us to be, not be above reproach, and he will wholly remove us if necessary. And so I want, you to, uh, I want to encourage you to pray for not just me, but our other elders as well, uh, that God will continue to maintain grace in their lives and continue to push them, um, us, as we walk together uh, before you, that Hebrews 13.7 uh, can be a reality for you, that you can see our lives and, and try to emulate our faith. Uh, and so I want to encourage you in that this is something that I am learning to walk along with you guys in general, uh, but particularly even in this one avenue of fasting. And so when we get into this actual text, I want to encourage you not to look to me uh, for the reality of the truth, and even uh, no matter what state my physical body is in or any preacher's physical body is in, but I want you to hang on to the text. There's so much truth that we're going to unpack and just these two verses, that it would be a shame for you to miss that. And I apologize if anything I am or have done might dissuade you from the truths of these texts. And so let's, let's talk about fasting and what this looks like. I wanted to acknowledge that first. But when we think about this idea of habits of grace and, and walking in these streams of trying to live in the grace that God has given us, and particularly these avenues that he's provided, I hope that you've been wandering in. I hope that you've been wading into these streams, that as we talk about the Word and owning His voice to us, and as we talk about prayer, and particularly the past couple of weeks, where we are at the throne of grace. We are in the throne room, we are at His feet, and we have the ear of the King of the universe, that you have been wading into these streams more and more. And so by this point, I'm hoping that maybe you're knee-deep, right? You're knee-deep in the water, and you're like, no, you know, this is good. I like this. This is it's a little cold. But I'm warming up to it. This is good. I can be in this. This is good. If you're wondering how to go all in, right? You, you walk into the water. When we're in Canada, Lake Huron is, is cold in June. 
Um, but uh, the place where we get to stay at these cottages, uh, you can literally wade from the shoreline to some of these islands that are like thousands of yards away, like football fields, three football fields. I guess that wouldn't be 1,000. That would be like 300. Um, many yards away, <laughs> or meters if you're from there. Uh, you can wade all the way over there, right? It gets a little high at some points, but you can wade the whole way. And when you walk out there, it's cold. Like, it's cold, but it's swimmable. And at some point, though, in order to swim, you have to take the plunge, right? Just like the pool in the summer, even on a hot day, you have to, you have to take the plunge. And, and I guess when I think about these streams of grace, what does it look like for a Christian to actually just take the plunge? Like, when we're talking about these different calls to action every week that we've preached, it, it seems as if we're saying, here, take a, take, take a step, the water's safe. It's good. Take a step. And you, and you take a step. And, and I'm wondering, what does it look like for us to actually just take the plunge? How would we take his voice, his ear, even his body, as we'll talk about in the coming weeks, and, and just go all in? What does that look like? And, and I think today is a good one for helping us see what it looks like to really just dive in. <laughs> when we talk about fasting and the idea of what fasting is designed to accomplish, it puts us in such a state that it really forces you all in. When it, when it comes to fasting, it's either religious activity or it's incredibly effective sharpening of your infections. And so today, I, I, I can't spend all of my time bouncing back and forth, protecting against religiosity and, and, and speaking then to actual good uh, affections for Christ. And so uh, m- most of my desire today is to assume the best. All right? I want you to to put away doing this before man. I want you to put away doing this for, for good works and, and recognize the contrast that Jesus is talking about here and taking these disciples of John, that is the Baptist, and then they bring in the Pharisees into the mix and saying that is religious activity. And you'll be tempted to make your fasting religious activity. But our focus today needs to be on the design of fasting and what God has intended for us in that. And so that is largely where I'm pushing. And some of you may be asking, isn't fasting a, a separate discipline? Well, yeah, it, it's kind of one of these greater minor things, kind of like memorizing scripture as a big part of the word, right? And we've talked about it already. Uh, it's, it's similar to how going to actual church is a big part of the idea of community. And so we really have these three major things, and fasting is a component of prayer. It would be a mistake to say that they're all really of the same means, but that one actually branches from another. And so when we get into this, we have to look at the broader context. We don't have the opportunity to walk through verse by verse by verse through Matthew. We're parachuting in. But we still, again, just as last week, need to look at what's before and after. And just before in this, you have Jesus kind of getting after it. I mean, he's, he's not backing down. He's uh, just out of the Sermon on the Mount, and he is... He's telling it like it is. He's doing his thing. He, he just uh, a verse ago says, you guys, go and learn what this means, right? How, how encouraging is that? You're like, I'm, I don't get it. Go and learn what this means, right? And Jesus is, is pushing it. He, he's setting up some serious contrast between who he is and what he represents and the culture around him. So he says, go and, and learn what this means. And it's funny because right after that, you have these disciples in verse 14 of John the Baptist coming to him and saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The great English minister John Stott says, there's something very typical and ironic about this inquiry. 
Here are the disciples of John and the Pharisees wondering why on earth they fast. It's very typical of religious people. They engage in all sorts of actions and ceremonies and have not the least idea why they do it. And I'm like, that is the American church. That's where we're at now too. It's not just England, and they have proven that true. But that's where we are. And, and Jesus is, is pushing hard against the cultural norms, particularly of religion. Just after our passage, and we'll, we'll talk about this just a little bit today, you have the passage is part of this on the new wine and, and old wineskins and the, the patch on an old garment. And so what he's really trying to say and what we're going to see in here is that he's not just trying to patch up the old Judaism. He came for the sick, he just says before. He didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. They're the ones who need a doctor. And you can't put new wine in old wineskins. It can't contain it. You can't put a new patch on an old garment. It will not be able to contain it. I'm not here to patch up the old Judaism. This is something completely new. He's saying, this is what my kingdom looks like. And and you are experiencing a failure to understand me as Messiah, as, as Christ, which is what you would typically hear. As Messiah, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, and, and you are missing the point. I'm not something you add to Judaism. This is something completely new. D.A. Carson says that this, this response that Jesus gives is just implicitly Christological. He himself is the Messianic bridegroom, and the Messianic age has dawned. It has started. My, my coming has brought the Messianic age, and you are missing the point. Why do you fast? I'm not sure why you fast. You're missing the point. You shouldn't be. The Messianic age is here. The bridegroom is here. Experience it. Recognize what's going on and be a part of it. And so our first point today as we start to unpack this is that Jesus is our long-awaited bridegroom. Jesus is our long-awaited bridegroom. I love asking questions. I love, I love the Socratic method. It's my preferred way to teach. I enjoy asking questions and making people unpack their stuff and helping them see what, what I see through asking questions. And I really enjoy the Gospels because Jesus is a question asker. As you're going to see in our, if you're in our counseling class on Wednesday and not in uh, the humility one, we're going to be talking a lot about questions. And Jesus responds to this large question of the disciples of John with really a, a question. And he just nails it on the head. This is what he does. He says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, you think in a question about fasting, particularly the purpose of it, and then in a sermon about fasting, particularly the purpose of it and how it sharpens your affections, we would start with talking about fasting, and we're not. Because Jesus says that there's something so much bigger going on that we're missing. He starts with this. Uh, he pulls this out of left field for most of us. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? You fishermen over there who aren't fasting, they're not at a wedding. You have a tax collector who's writing this book. He's not at a wedding. What do you mean, Jesus? What wedding are you talking about? He's talking about the celebration. What's at stake? What, what's even coming? Right? At a Jewish wedding, an open house was maintained for an entire week. It was a time of great rejoicing and hospitality, dancing and fun, such as might rarely come into the lives, particularly of poor people. And it was all paid for 
by the bridegroom's family. It was free to all comers. And, and what a description that is of the kingdom that Jesus came to usher in, right? Jesus brings joy with him. I don't know if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, but I, ha I have. And uh, as an introvert, as one who cannot dance, whether Jewish-type dance or otherwise, and as someone who likes quiet, I was incredibly uncomfortable. It was the most awkward and uncomfortable experience of my life. Everyone was having fun, and I was freaking out, right? They're letting loose. They know how to party, and I don't. So I just ate my food um, and held my baby. <laughs> but it was crazy. They're crazy. They have so much fun. It's a celebration of celebrations that I've not seen. And that's, what's, that's what he's alluding to. This celebration's going on. Why are you fasting? You see, when we talk about the relational aspects of these habits of grace every week, you can't miss them. We talked about God as Father a lot, right? And we talk about the relational nature by which we approach the Word, that this is a word to His children, that we have been made right with God and we are made friends with God and we can come into the throne room of God and sit at His feet, right? There is so much relational language that we're talking about in these habits of grace. And if we miss them, it's not going to make sense. None of this will. These relational aspects of these habits of grace are the foundation on which all of this is built. And that is notably separate from what these other religious disciples of both John and the Pharisees are doing. For them, this is a grand exercise of missing the point. And the challenge today is for us to not be like that. Because just two chapters earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, as he's closing, Jesus issues himself this, this warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name and, and fast in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness. That feels like a cheap shot at the end of it. You see, the danger for us is to miss the relationship and do it for the religious purposes. Now, God has called us to something so much more. He's calling us to a relationship in the, the bridegroom. The bridegroom. It's a very Old Testament idea. This is your biblical theology picture for the day. When we look at the Old Testament idea of bridegroom, for me as a man, this was particularly difficult to kind of wrap my head around of the idea of Jesus being my husband. That's kind of weird. Um, it doesn't really fit with the way that I process most of this, but then I came to understand really the united aspect of being the church. And I see then the picture of the way that God responds, Jesus responds to the church as, as her husband. And then getting married, that of course unlocks a lot of the picture for me, of understanding how I am supposed to respond to my wife and the way that Jesus responds to the church. And so now this, this idea of the bridegroom, very Old Testament idea is a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so let's explore this a little bit to see what it really what it means for us. If you look back in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 through 6, this should be on the screen for you. It says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. 
He says later in Isaiah 62, 4-5, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, this is, of course, picked up by Jesus here, and we'll come back to that. But this idea of the bridegroom and the relationship between Jesus and the church is picked up by other authors in the New Testament. It's carried on by Paul and John, for instance. But Paul in Ephesians 5, 25-33 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, but he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And catch this, this is where Paul unlocks it. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The entire picture of marriage is born out of the mystery of the fact that Jesus is the bridegroom to the church. We see it with John in Revelation chapter 19 in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then again in Revelation 21, you see this picture of Jerusalem. You're going to hear the word the church and his people, right? So Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And you catch this culmination of this picture in Isaiah and from Hosea, this, this picture of once they were named forsaken. They were once named desolate now they are my delight and married now they are dwelt with they are his people he is their god so you have this beautiful relational picture happening and it's not just something that jesus makes up this is something that he digs deep into the old testament with and recognizes this movement of god the Father, and claims for himself the title of bridegroom to Jerusalem, his people. And so Jesus claims this for himself. Now, if all of that looks awesome, if that gets you excited, then you must recognize the man Jesus as Christ, as Messiah. That's what he's pointing to here in his response to these religious people. The whole point of his question back to them is how can you be in mourning when the celebration is now? 
I am the bridegroom and I am here among you. There's no room for mourning. What a treasure he is. What a treasure it is to have the bridegroom. Not just to have the bridegroom, but the capital B bridegroom, Jesus. Listen to J.C. Ryle here. He says, What the bridegroom is to the bride, the Lord Jesus is to the souls of all who believe in him. He loves them with a deep and everlasting love. He takes them into union with himself. They are one with Christ and Christ in them. He pays all their debts to God. He supplies all their daily need. He sympathizes with them in all of their troubles. He bears with all of their infirmities and He does not reject them for a few weaknesses. He regards them as part of Himself. Those that persecute and injure them are persecuting Him. The glory that He has received from His Father, they will one day share with Him. And where He is, there shall they be. And such are the privileges for all true Christians. They are the Lamb's wife. Such is the portion to which faith admits us. By it, God joins our poor, sinful souls to one precious husband. And those whom God thus joins together shall never be put asunder. Blessed indeed are they that believe. And so recognizing Jesus as the bridegroom, as the one who has come for us, is absolutely pivotal to understanding who he is. What comes with him? The messianic age is here. This is new. This is different. And it's going to be important in just a moment. And so we see that Jesus brings joy. We see that Jesus brings something beautiful and amazing. And that is the ultimate response to their question. And so Jesus brings joy. But there is a clear prediction of sorrow too, right? The way that he says it, there's a clear prediction of sorrow too as he looks ahead to his death he says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast and so he looks forward and and, and what we need to see and understand is that joy and sorrow are inextricably wound together in the lives of the disciples and of our lives as disciples just as they were in the life of our master Joy and sorrow are inextricably linked together. And so now we mourn his absence and our sin. We mourn his absence and our sin. Let's talk absence first as that is what Jesus says is the catalyst. The bridegroom will be taken away. That, that's the thing that, that spurs on the, this coming fasting. He says that the bridegroom will be taken away. That's, the bridegroom's leaving. That's really unusual, right? And we shouldn't... On the other side of the ascension, right, now having the completely revealed Word of God, this makes sense to us. It doesn't catch us for a second that this is unusual, we know that Jesus dies, is buried, raised again, and ascends on high. And then the rest of the New Testament comes. And, and we have the promises of John the Revelator. 
uh, written to us, right? And, and we can see that. So to us, it's, oh, yeah, yeah, I know the plot. Well, you've already watched the movie, and you're spoiling it for all the people that haven't read it yet. Because for those that get this the first time, the disciples who are there hearing this, that the bridegroom will be taken away, they're like, wait, what? What? Right, because then later, Peter says, by no means, Lord, will they take you. They don't understand what's at stake, what's going on. It, 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 the bridegroom's here, and he's not supposed to leave. That's highly unusual. And then, of course, for us, too, on this side of, of the text, we're saying, well, isn't the Spirit with us? Yeah, the, the bridegroom's leaving, but it's so he could send the Spirit. We have the Spirit. So he hasn't really left, right? And Paul has some, has some words for that. Paul understands this as like a homesickness sense, the idea of, Jesus being away. John Piper says it this way. He says, in other words, in this age, there's an ache and, and a longing, a homesickness inside every Christian that Jesus is not here as fully and intimately and as powerfully and as gloriously as we want him to be. And so that is why we fast. And this homesickness that it's not like it's supposed to be, not in its final sense. And so we have to stop and, and look and see, all right, where do we fit? How do, how do we understand this homesickness? How do we understand this Jesus was here, now he's gone, and, and we're waiting? What do, we, what do we do with that? We have to first recognize what has been done. We have to recognize what's been done already. Think about it. Remember the gospel gap from, from last week? Oh, we have this great picture in the church of, of what the gospel has saved us from. And we have this great picture of this future hope. But there's this gospel gap here in the middle where we don't understand how the gospel applies to today. What do I do with the resurrection today? What do I do with victory over sin today? What does it mean for my family that Jesus has come and paid for all of our sins, but we're still not perfect yet. How do I apply the gospel today? And, and we forget so much what to experience now, right? How the gospel affects today is still so prevalent. And so we look, I think, sometimes with too much clarity and dare I even say hope, to the future. It's okay that Jesus is gone. He's coming back. That's not the picture that we see here. It's not the picture that we see. There, there might be a little bit too much hope for us and just patiently waiting for the future to come rather than longing for it to come now, recognizing that things are not like they should be. So we have to look at what's been done and, and what affects us for today because the great, central, decisive act of salvation for us today is a past thing. It's not Jesus coming back. Salvation is accomplished and it's judgment that is coming. Yes, we long for the day when Jesus comes back, but not for salvation. We've been saved. We are being saved. We will be judged. It's judgment that's coming. And on the basis of the past work of the bridegroom, nothing can ever be the same again. The past work of salvation, the present reality of the fact that we are saved is new. It is something new. The wine, as we'll see in the next verse, is new. The blood has been shed. The lamb is slain. 
The punishment of our sins is executed. Death is already defeated. The bridegroom is risen. The spirit is sent. The wine is new. And our fasting rests on all of this finished work of the bridegroom. And so now when we look to the future, the yearning that we feel for revival or awakening or deliverance from corruption is not merely longing and aching. In fact, it's the first fruits of what we long for that have already come. The down payment of what we yearn for is already paid. The fullness that we're longing for and fasting for has appeared in history and we have beheld his glory. It's not merely future. It's now. It's present. Think of it in this way. When we talk about this idea of fasting and food, it's the taste, right? We have tasted the powers of the age to come. We've tasted that. We know what is coming. Our fasting is not because we're hungry for something that we've not tasted, but because of the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying. The newness of our fasting, what separates it from the disciples of John and the religious activity of the Pharisees is this. Its intensity comes not because we've never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by His Spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. And we must have all that he promised, and as much now as is possible. You see the difference? Our hope in the future is not because we've not tasted it. It's because we have tasted and we have seen, and it's not fully realized yet. It's like when you see the amazing cake and all you get is a little bite. You want the whole cake. It's not enough to have one of the pepperonis from the deep dish Chicago pie. You need the whole thing. It's like smelling something delicious, your favorite thing, and never being able to taste it. But you have tasted it, and you want the whole thing. The idea is that we have experienced the bridegroom. He's been here. We know what it's like to know God but not in its most full way. And that's what's so beautiful about Revelation 19 and beyond as we look at the consummation, the fullness of the reality of the picture of what it means to be in the presence of God. To see Him as He is. Right now we know in part. And we know in part, right? We've tasted. But it's not like it's going to be. And so the idea for fasting for us is to, to recognize that there's something missing. It's not right yet. We want to taste more of God. And so we mourn His absence. We, we mourn Him being away from us. But we also need to see what Jesus recognizes as the typical association of fasting when He uses the word mourn. In, in their context... Fasting was by, lar- by and large associated with mourning in that day. It was an expression of brokenheartedness and, and desperation, usually over sin or some other danger. It was something that you did when things were not going the way you wanted them to. And so we have to talk about our sin. We mourn his absence and we mourn our sin. So the idea of fasting is for us not about mourning. The context for us of fasting is just usually religious activity. And it's usually centered around something big, like a building project in a church. 
Or maybe if we're a little bit more pious, missions, right? That way we can act like acts, right? Um, that is kind of the picture that we associate, I think, uh, in my experience growing up in the church of what fasting is and what it is for. Holy misses the point. It's not that. In, in, in the original context, the picture here is mourning. It'll be taken away and then they will fast. So this idea of mourning, we have to talk about our sin. What do I mean about fasting being that which plunges us into the stream of prayer? Now, fasting is an intensification of prayer. Fasting is an intensification of prayer. It's, it's kind of like a physical exp, uh, exclamation point at the end of the sentence. We hunger for you to come in power. It's a cry with your body. I really mean it, Lord. This much I hunger for you. The Reformers have much to say on fasting. John Calvin says this, he says, Let us say something about fasting, because many, for want of knowing its usefulness, undervalue its necessity, and some reject it as almost superfluous. While, on the other hand, where the use of it is not well understood, it easily degenerates into superstition. Holy and legitimate fasting is directed to three ends. We practice it either as a restraint on the flesh to preserve it from licentiousness, or as a preparation for prayers and pious meditations, or third, as a testimony of our humiliation and the presence of God when we are desirous of confessing our guilt before Him. None of those three were on my radar growing up in the church. That's not what fasting's for. Martin Luther says, Of fasting I say this, it is right to fast frequently, in order to subdue and control the body. For when the stomach is full, the body does not serve for preaching, for praying, or studying, or for doing anything else that is good. Under such circumstances, God's word cannot remain, but one should not fast with a view to meriting something by it as by a good work. And so we can't miss this language, this, this picture of self-control. We can't miss that. Our hearts are prone to wander. Our tongues, as James says, are raging fires. Our eyes are covetous. Our hands are idle. Really, with every sense that we have, we are desirous of sin. You know, left to ourselves, we will do only evil all the time. It's our default position. And, and the doctrine of total depravity is too often just totally dismissed. We have to start with the idea that we are capable of nothing good apart from the grace of God. And so in order to be righteous, in order to live in the way that God has commanded us, to walk in the ways and the works that He has prepared for us in advance to go, we must do so by grace. We think too highly of our own righteousness, and so even our pious acts become self-righteous. And so then, when we talk about fasting, and particularly of sin, I mean, think about it. For a man or a woman to purposefully afflict himself with the pangs of hunger, 
and longing and to and to devote himself to crying to the Lord for deliverance is just tragically unheard of in the American church. The question I have to put before not just you but myself is what sin do you despair of so much in your life that you'll give up food? What sin in your life are you wrestling with so deeply that fasting is the only way with which you can cry to God? The idea of, for I don't know how many of you have an unhealthy relationship with food, for us, this is battleground. This is battleground. I've explained to many of you my story in beginning this year, but it's my default to go to food. It's my default to find comfort, to find rest, to, find, to, to get rid of the noise. It's what landed me in most of this position in the first place. Food was my savior. You have to actually say it. You have to recognize that's the relationship. Food was my savior. After a relationship in college ended, I turned to food. I was 267 pounds. I looked nice. It was, it was good. I wore actually extra large shirts. It was crazy. What did I turn to? Food. One, you can get 10 for 10 little Totino's pizzas, and if you fold them in half, it turns into a calzone. It's awesome. That's what you do, right? You guys like cookies and milk? Take a whole pack of Oreos, put it in a mixing bowl, and dump vitamin D milk on it. You have cereal, right? That's what I ran to. And it's, I know it's horrifying. I, I haven't done the math, but it's, it's horrifying. That was what I ran to. That's where I found salvation and comfort. And that largely got me into the place that I am today. And, and that, that was a long time ago. But that was the real relationship that I had. It was my Savior. And I never called it that, but that was the reality. And so then the question is, is what sin now do I despair of so much that I'm willing to give up my, call it what it is, Savior? Now, for those of you that have a healthy relationship with food, it's not that <laughs> comforting to you. There's a lot more that we're going to talk about besides just food in just a little bit. But even food, if it's not a savior, it's a satisfier. And the challenge for you is going to be seeing it not maybe as a savior, but as a satisfier. And so when you afflict yourself with the pangs of hunger, when your stomach says, you're not done, try again, and you turn that over to the Lord and you say, no, I, yeah, I need it. I won't last on this earth without it. But I need you more right now. I need you more. I need you deeply and truly, and I need you to be my Savior. Not that, not that food. I need you right now. And for us believers who are not always just doing religious work, think about the, the, the societal contrast. No one on this planet who does not believe in God is going to willfully give up a meal and suffer pain just because... When we recognize it as a dependency on God, it has real power. God meets us in our prayers, and he hears us for our fasting. And so we must grieve over our sin. Fasting will sharpen our prayers. 
What do I mean by sharpen? It made it in the title. I need to explain what I mean here. In woodworking, particularly, one of the most dangerous things in the shop is not the spinning blade. The most dangerous thing in the shop is the spinning dull blade. A dull blade will hurt you quicker from carving to power tools quicker than anything. Almost all of my injuries in the shop, which I'm beating the family curse right now. There are three members in my extended family that are missing fingers from woodworking, so it's working its way my way. All of my injuries in the shop have come from a dull blade. When you're carving, if it's dull, you'll put way too much pressure into it to make it happen, and then it will slip and it will cut you. When you're working with a saw, it will bind and it will throw three-quarter horses at you. That's a lot of horse. It will throw it at you. A dull blade is one of the most dangerous things. When you're using a chisel and you're trying to carefully carve into something and it's dull, you'll push with all your weight to make it happen and it will go through or it might hit you. You'll ruin your peace. When we think about our prayer, it's a tool. It's a means of grace. It's a way for us to experience and understand God. And if it's dull, it's ineffective. It doesn't accomplish what it's supposed to. In fact, it may be dangerous. Can you imagine your prayer actually being dangerous? Go back to the New Testament and see how many times God's, Jesus says, don't do like they do. It's wrong. <laughs> don't pray like the Pharisees do. Don't fast like the Pharisees do. Yeah, your religious activity can be dangerous. And when it's dull, it's not sharp, it's dangerous. And so when we're dealing with sin, and we're praying and praying and praying that God removes it, but we're not willing to give up a meal and seek his face over it, you're dealing with a dull prayer. Imagine the bountiful relational fruit that would come from a Christian fasting and seeking God's face in those times. What are you looking for? What are you praying for? What are you seeking from God? What sin do you want to overcome? What relationship do you want to see restored? What decision are you trying to make? What injustice in the world are you grieving over? Fast and pray. Because in fasting, you sharpen, it intensifies your prayer by saying this, God, we depend on you. We depend on you. Fasting is not a magical formula, but it is an exclamation point to the fact that, God, we depend on you. That's where we ended last week. That's where we're going to end today. We depend on him to act. And so through fasting, we sharpen our affections and we draw near through dependency. We draw near through dependency. Speaking of dependency, <laughs> dependent on coffee. We draw near through dependency. We are dependent on Him. As we talked about last week, why pray? Right? We asked the question, why, <laughs> why do we even pray? Because it's effective, because it's powerful, because it is speaking to the God of the universe through which we've been invited to communicate with. 
And so prayer is powerful, and this was our exclamation point. James chapter 5, verse 16, I mentioned this last week and just now, this is where we get it. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer is what's leading to the healing. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I, I memorize this verse as the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I think that's the NIV. Both of these are great pictures of this. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. It's powerful. And I like this, this terming, as it is working. The prayers of a righteous person always work. Do you catch that? It's not, they're powerful when they work. They're powerful if they work. They're powerful when they work. It's effective. That's why I like the NIV's word of that. It's, it's efficacious. It's doing what it's designed to do. Now listen, you're saying, well, God doesn't answer all of our prayers. He answers all the prayers of the righteous. Because the righteous, as we've seen in the past weeks, pray according to the will of God. As we talked about last week, particularly, a kingdom citizen, a righteous kingdom citizen, is praying in line with the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom is here. And God always answers those prayers. And so the righteous person, through fasting, as we're concerned about today, sharpens their affections, understands their role, their total depravity, their dependency on God, and prays in line with the kingdom of God. The bridegroom. The messianic age that is here. You pray in line with that. God hears it. It is powerful as it is working. John Piper in 1995, I have his sermon catalog in, in Logos. That's why I get to find these things. In 1995, so that was a long time ago, um, gave this story. So I want you to recognize that there's 23 years between the time of him telling this story which is almost the amount of time that the story covers, all right? So recognize that. He says, in, in regards to this passage of, of fasting, he says, in a more recent time, the evangelical church in South Korea, we just had the Olympics there, uh, that's what we're talking about. The evangelical church in South Korea has taught the rest of the world a lesson in prayer and fasting. The first Protestant church was planted in Korea in 1884. 100 years later, there were 30,000 churches 30,000. That's an average of 300 new churches a year for 100 years. Today, evangelicals comprise about 30% of the population 23 years ago. God has used many means to do this great work, and one of them is a recovery of not just a dynamic prayer, but a fasting prayer. In the OMS, the Overseas Missionary Society churches alone, more than 20,000 people have completed a 40-day fast, usually at one of their prayer houses in the mountains. 300 new churches a year for 100 years. Guys, there's only 356 days in the year. That's almost a church a day. Prayer is powerful and effective. We recognize the longing and dependency on God to do a work that only he can do. Do you think any of those Koreans are saying, yeah, we did this? Do you think you'll actually be able to find which of those 20,000 did a 40-day fast? They won't tell you. They recognize the dependency on God. They recognize the dependency for a work that they can't 
produce. And so we draw near through dependency. Now, if I haven't convinced you yet, if I haven't persuaded you as of yet, <laughs> then let's talk about one last piece from this text. Listen for the implied command that, that Jesus gives in regards to this text. He says, then they will fast. It's expected. And so again, if I haven't persuaded you yet, then know at least that Jesus expects it. And so put it into practice. Put fasting into practice in your life. With the same expectation of fumbling and ineffectiveness as any new skill or discipline, your first time fasting, if it's been a long time or ever, it's going to be really weird and awkward. And you'll be like, what do I do now? Do I just pray more? I don't eat. I'm, I'm really hungry. Should I eat more for breakfast so that I can make it through lunch, right, and not have a need? Oh, wait, that's the, that's the point, right? It, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be weird. That's okay. That's part of learning a new thing. We should expect that. And so persevere in it, grow in it, and trust him in it. The point is to grow in affection. The point is to grow in affection, to grow in self-control, to grow in discipline, and remember that you can't do it. Be dependent. That's the point of the gospel. The work has been done. This is new wine. It's supposed to be a difficult experience. We rest in the presence and work of Christ. On our behalf, before the throne of grace, we trust him. And so it's supposed to be difficult. And think about what you're training in yourself. Think about the purpose of why you do it, what you're training in yourself. Desires. Saying, Father, I need victory over this desire. I desire something that I cannot and should not have. Or do not need. Or I just don't desire you. Help me in that. Help me in that. Sharpen my affections for you as I give over this time of satisfaction in something that can dull my senses. You think about it. You go to Bob Evans, right, and you get the Reese's pancakes, the triple layer pancakes with peanut butter on there that they have right now. Don't shake your head at me. No. I'm just telling you, you eat that, it's cement, right? You're done for the day. You're over, right? That's what Martin Luther means. A full stomach gives you nothing to do for the rest of the day. You eat something right, you have energy. I've experienced that over these six months. I have weird amounts of energy now. But that is cement, right? You say, Father, I don't need this. I don't need this desire. Father, let me be hurting, pained for you like I am for this food that won't satisfy and that I'll need again in three hours. I need you now. Think about what you're training. Motivations. Why you do what you do. The identity from which it comes. Father, I don't see you as my father. Father, I don't see Jesus as my bridegroom. And so I do these things just for myself. So that one day I'll be counted as righteous. And I'm not, I'm not doing it to please you. I'm not doing it to be obedient to you. I'm not doing it to show love for you. I'm doing it because I want to look better so that people will see me, so that they'll congratulate me, so that they'll affirm me, so that, that I can have power over them. Whatever it may be, my motivations are not right. Father, train in me the right desire and the right motivations to please you. 
Think about how you grow in emotions, right? If we're going to talk about fasting, we have to talk about hangry, right? I can't fast for health reasons because I'll get hangry. Okay, two things. There are legitimate places for us to not fast for health reasons. Uh, I'm thinking probably diabetics. I'm thinking probably maybe pregnant people. I don't know if how much of that is fear. She's bobbing her head. She's a doctor, so we're just saying, okay. Um, <laughs> could we push through it? That's the thing. This is the line we want to walk, and that's why I've only talked about food so far, right? We have emotional attachments to food. I do. And food is the primary thing that we see in Scripture when it comes to fasting. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more in just a second. But on the legitimate side, where we can and should fast and regularly, emotions are a big part of it. Even getting hangry, I, I, that's, that's some dependency that we see. We have to be careful. We have to recognize that that is part of the point. Our emotions are a big thing that we are going to wrestle with when it comes to fasting. And last point in thinking about what you're training, think about even your thinking. <clears throat> As you're fasting, you're training your thinking. Paul talks a lot about what we should dwell on about what we should look for, about what we should desire in our thinking. And as we fast, we set aside special time to do without so that we can think about the things of God, so that we can think rightly about our relationship with food, so we can think rightly about our need for things from any desire that we've talked about, from the eyes to the hands to the ears to the taste. <clears throat> We think about these things. And so there is transformation happening. And that is uncomfortable. And it's supposed to be. But as we've talked about, it's freeing. It's freeing. I'm in so much more freedom now, six months into this, than I was before. And I have much more to discover. But it's freedom. It's hard work. It's supposed to be. But what's the point of the end of creation? Rest. Don't overrealize the rest now. Work hard now. Now, let's take our last couple of moments to divert away from just food and talk about it on a broader scale. I really wanted the, the weight of it to be on food. Uh, for those that have a healthy relationship with it, too, I think it, it's an important thing for that to be the primary means by which we practice fasting. <clears throat> and having mentioned 40 days, don't start there. Um, start with a meal. And start with one that you regularly eat. For me, to fast from breakfast is not really a thing. Uh, it's not hard for me to go until 2 o'clock and start eating. Um, some of you may have heard of intermittent fasting. That doesn't count, okay? That's a diet plan. Um, you can do that if Bobby says it's okay, because she's our doctor. Um, <laughs> you can do that if that's what works for you. I, I have been trying to eat breakfast, but it, breakfast doesn't do it for me, all right? Missing lunch... That's a thing. Um, missing dinner, and yeah, that, that's a thing for me. Uh, and so it needs to be a thing for you, okay? Um, we're talking about affliction here. Now, food is the primary means, but I want to read this. Uh, this is from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think this is helpful in, in giving a broad scope to the way that you can exercise this. So fasting, he says, if we conceive of it truly, must not be confined to the question of food and drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything that is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. 
There are many bodily functions which are right and normal and perfectly legitimate, but which for special, peculiar reasons and certain circumstances should be controlled. That is fasting. Now, a few things in here. He says things that are legitimate in and of itself, right? Um, For instance, uh, in Lent, right, when I was in high school, my Catholic friend uh, gave up for Lent cursing and smoking. Um, I don't know that that counts, Um, you know, so... (laughs) legitimate things, right? Um, that brings me to some things like, you know, TV. TV is legitimate in and of itself, depending on what you watch and how much. And so some people will say, I'm going to do a technological fast. I think there's room for that. I think that's a legitimate thing. Um, but again, that's why I'm throwing so much weight to the food side. That's the practice that we see in scripture primarily. But there is room for these other things, fasting from technology, fasting from things that are legitimate in and of themselves. Even to the extent of fasting from, cover your children, sex, right? Paul gives room for that, but not without great explanation of the dangers of that. For a time when both agree and only to devote yourselves to the Lord, and then after a set time, come back together, right? And so there's room for fasting and other things, and that's not really the point of this sermon, but I, I need to address it because we probably won't preach on fasting for a while. Um, I need to address that. I want you to see that there are ways to pursue what we're looking for in other ways. We are looking for dependency on God. And too many of us are dependent on our phones, are dependent on technology, are dependent on our TVs, are dependent on food. And so, for us, I want to encourage us all to join in fasting. Make it a part of your life. Start with a meal, start with a lunch, and give that time to God. Don't just miss it, to miss it for missing its sake. Give that time to God. Then maybe a whole day. And then see where God takes you. Be careful. Don't flaunt it. Seek help if you need it. But give that to God. And be dependent on him. That's the point of it. Now, last, for those of you that have a healthy relationship with food, Food is still the primary way in which we fast. Why? Because it creates, even in those that have a healthy relationship with it, a visceral pain to it. There is a deep internal longing. It is something you need. Even if you only need a little bit. (laughs) Rabbits out there. Even if you only need a little bit, you need it. And so I want to call us all to fasting. And it's not because you haven't tasted the new wine of Christ's presence. That's that's not why. But because you have tasted it. And you long with a deep and joyful aching of the soul to know more of his presence and his power in your life. And so ultimately, if you want to put an exclamation point on this sermon, what is fasting? We do without because we cannot do without. We do without food because we cannot do without God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your, for your grace. Father, as you are sanctifying each and every one of us, Father, I pray that you would help us see who we are first. We get to be united with Jesus, our bridegroom. He cares for us. He's paid everything for us. It's because of him and his work that we stand before you whole and complete and without blemish. 
because of him that we can draw near to the throne of grace. It's because of him that we will see you as you are. And so, Father, train us in our prayer. Train us as a church to desire you more than anything. To give up a meal or to suffer pain in order to sharpen our affections for you. That our prayer would not be dull, but, Father, that it would be powerful and effective. That our prayer would be for your kingdom. That our prayer would be for your will. Father, we need you. We need you more than life itself. Those big prayers that Greg read for us from Psalms earlier, those are big, big prayers. We won't get there without fasting. You've designed this for us to lead us to dependency on you. And Father, if we want to remotely try to say those same things from the Psalms, Father, you have to train us. And so, Father, submit our hearts to you, that we would trust you in the process, that we would persevere with power, and that we would walk alongside you dependent. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.